um, some of you all are uh, aware of and others are not. There was a young man who reached out to me some seven or eight years ago in Sierra, Sierra Leone wanting to know about what the doctrines of grace were. And so we communicated for a long time over those over the doctrines and um, and he uh, established a fellowship there and we sent a number of ministers there to baptize um, brothers and sisters in Christ. And he was recently ordained to the ministry um, through the church in Kenya, which has an arm of a church through um, Brother Johnson in Denton, Texas. So we now have a primitive Baptist church in Sierra Leone, who is the pastored by Dominic Sudama Pesma. So thank the Lord for that. Amen. Um, as far as scripture goes, and pray for him because it's very difficult over there. They have a great, great deal of need. They just recently built a new building to meet in, which people from all over the country contributed to, to the construction of that building. And that's where they're meeting at now. It's much more a sturdy um, brick and mortar construction. Um, but the, the thoughts that were on my mind this morning were three chapters of the Bible, Hebrews 8, 9, and 10. But I'm not going to go there. <laughs> that was what was on my mind. But I do want you to. I want to ask. Your, I want you to ask yourself a question. Do you believe that you truly are perfected forever by the finished work of Jesus Christ? Because there are times, if you're human and you have the Spirit of God in you and you have your old nature, there are times you don't feel that way. That's unbelief. And we're not. We're not encouraged to remain in unbelief. We're encouraged to believe the things that are. Most surely, or embrace those things that are surely believe amongst us, like um, the brother re- repeats out of, out of John, where it says, "These are things are written that you might believe." The reason why we are encouraged to believe and not remain in unbelief is because if you think back to the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve had fellowship with God without a mediator. It was directly Adam and Eve with God. Mm-hmm. Well, Christ has done that for you. You now can go to the throne of grace with boldness, through a new and living way, which Christ has purchased for you with his own blood. What does that blood do for us? It gives us a clean conscience, believing what he has done. He has made us accepted in the beloved. We are accepted in the beloved. We are not sinners before God. We are holy and just before God. And that's what we're, that's the life we're called to live. May God bless you to understand that. Amen. I'm going to ask you all a question to be thinking about just over the next 10 to 15 minutes. And that is, what is the greatest motivator of our actions? What is the greatest motivator that caused us to get up this morning or come to this house or some of the sisters who made a meal or maybe you've done other things today what is the greatest motivator of our actions Galatians chapter 5 stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free And be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you, that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised, that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Christ is become of no effect unto you. 
Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. I think what Paul is saying here, or one of the points he's trying to get across is... He brings up the law, one aspect of the law, the circumcision. There's, I think there's over 600 laws in the Old Testament that are given forth and are instructed to be followed. And then in the New Testament, when Christ comes and dies on the cross, the law is fulfilled. <clears throat> but there's still, at this time, when he's writing to this church in Galatia, there's still plenty of people who are trying to justify themselves before God by the law. And it, he expounds on it a lot more in the previous chapters. This is the fifth chapter. But, I mean, even now, you find sects of people that still are doing everything they can to get to heaven, are working as hard as they can, are trying to outweigh you know, their bad works with their good works and all this. And sometimes people will say, oh, it's like a it's like a balance. You know, you have to if you can do enough good to outweigh your bad, then you can the the tails, the scales tip. And that's your way to get to heaven. That's your way to be right with God. I think here Paul is saying. If you're going to try and tip those balances. If you're going to try and abide by this law, and I'm not saying the law is bad at all, but if you're going to follow these minute rules for the sake of following these rules, for the sake of trying to work for your salvation, don't be a hypocrite. If you're going to be circumcised, you're a debtor to the whole law. If you're going to start with one thing, you might as well do the whole thing. You can't just do one part and then say, oh, you know. I think my good works are outweighing my bad works. That's that's the way. That's the way I can go. <clears throat> if you're going to do one part, you need to do the whole thing. And <clears throat> I think it's evidence in the scripture. We don't even have the capability that's right. to complete the whole law. <clears throat> There's only been one man that lived on this earth that ever had the ability to do every part of that law right, or to do everything right and not sin, and that was Jesus Christ. (laughs) And I think he says, if you're you're trying to work for your salvation, verse 4, Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. In this church, we believe that we're saved by grace. Not by the things that we do. Not by the things that we say. Not by the way that we act. But that those things, the things that we do, are motivated by the grace that's been shown to us. Not, not by our, our desire to get there. I mean, that... I'm not saying it's bad to have a desire to go to heaven. That's great. Thank the Lord that we can have a hope. But 
our motivation is not out of fear that we're going to fail. It's not out of... We're motivated because of grace, because of the things that have been shown to us. That's right. Verse 13. For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. I know on a Wednesday night a few weeks ago, a lot of you weren't here, but I talked about, I think it was Romans 15. When Paul says, let every man be persuaded in his own mind. There's a lot of hills that people die on. There's a lot of things that people just take to their grave that I think are really not as important as they're made out to be. There's things that are important. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is important. That's a hill you need to die on. If somebody tries to persuade you that Christ did not rise from the dead, that's one that you can take to your grave. But there's a lot of things that... We've been given liberty in. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to go through lots of examples, but we're not bound by these 600 or so laws in this Old Testament. There's benefit to a lot of those. There's benefit to the Ten Commandments. But if you're going to try and keep all those, you've got to keep the whole thing. It's not just, you can't just pick one out and then blame other people if they're not following the ones that you're following. <laughs> Each, each child of God has been given a Christian liberty. And he says, Use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. <clears throat> for all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I think if that is your motivation, if... Maybe you care about the Farringtons. I know a lot of these sisters have brought them meals. Something like that or something else. If you're motivated because you love them, you love your neighbor, that touches all of those important parts in those 600 laws. That's going to reach everything that you need to reach. That's, you don't have to feel guilty about missing one mark of those things. If you're if you're truly motivated by love, if you're truly loving your neighbor as yourself, that's going to handle everything else. He says, "But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed ye be not consumed one of another." This I say then, walk in the spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Biting and devouring is something I think that can destroy a church body. I think there's a lot of churches in history that have fallen apart. They've been consumed by biting and devouring. I think anytime we have that kind of spirit, a spirit of malice, he says in 1 Corinthians, be children concerning malice. Be men in understanding. That's, that's not supposed to be a part of the Christian, is biting and devouring. He says, walk in the Spirit. Be motivated by love. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary, the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. St. Paul would say, 
here's two things that don't work together, is the Spirit and the flesh. The flesh lusteth against the Spirit. If you're motivated by love, if that is at the forefront of your mind, in your actions, if that's what's causing you to act the way you do, to think the things you think and to say the things you say, malice cannot be present with love. Those things are contrary. I know it says the Spirit and the flesh, but if you're acting out of love, it's hard to be angry at somebody. It's hard to be mean to somebody. It's hard to be... <clears throat> it's hard to look down on everyone. He says, But if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. He says, Envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. And then he says, against such there is no law. So if you're following those, if you're living by the fruits of the Spirit, by love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance, if you're truly acting those things out, you don't have to worry about what those 600 laws say. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. I think... What is our greatest motivation? What is the thing that motivates our actions? Is it malice? Is it pride? It should be grace. We should want to cause... We should want to show evidence of the things that have been shown to us. The fact that our sins have been forgiven. The fact that our salvation is secured. Not by the things that we did. Not by the laws that we followed. But by one man. By a sacrifice. That was apart from us. May God bless you. Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, it's referred to as the Sermon on the Mount, and want to look at some of the, um, what some refer to as the Beatitudes, and then it tells us, uh, it's addressing a multitude, and then it tells us toward the end of these nine, I believe it's nine points that are made right here, that the purpose is that we are to be the salt of the earth. Uh, We are to be the light of the world. Uh, It says, let your light so shine in verse 16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father, which is in heaven. Start with verse one and we'll read through the the, I think it's nine different uh, Beatitudes that are mentioned here. And it has the very best, the most perfect preacher of all, Jesus Christ, delivering this message. So the message is delivered uh, perfectly. 
it's delivered in the right spirit. Uh, he says it exactly right. The content is exactly right. You don't have to question it. You don't have to debate it. Uh, what Jesus Christ says is completely perfect. Unlike any other men that would bring a message, uh, Jesus Christ does it exactly the right way all the time. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into the mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him. So the disciples were there. There were others that were there. And it says that he opened his mouth and he taught them saying, and here's uh, what he was teaching. Blessed are the poor in spirit. It doesn't necessarily say right here that it is a requirement to be uh, poor in this world's goods. It's not talking about earthly items that it addresses right here. But he says, blessed are those that are poor in spirit. Well, how is it that we are poor in spirit? In fact, if we look at each one of these items right here, it's the result of what Brother Luke brought out this morning. It's the result of the grace that God has worked within our life. It's the result of God quickening us with His Spirit. It's the result of, it is the outpouring of what Christ has done in us. Because we're not going to be poor in spirit. We're not going to wake up one day and just decide that we're going to be poor in spirit. We're not going to be poor in spirit of our own accord, but we're going to be poor in spirit because Christ has made us to realize that we are sinners, that we are greatly in debt and that we need a savior. And so the only way that we're going to be poor in spirit is not by what we've done, but by what Christ has done for us and in us and through us. And so to be poor in spirit is to actually realize that we're sinners. Is to realize that we mourn our sins, that we mourn who we are, that we mourn the thoughts that we have, that we mourn when we say the wrong thing, when we do the wrong thing. He says, blessed are the, the poor in spirit. It's just the opposite of those that would be lifted in pride, lifted in arrogance, lifted in self. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, first of all, your blessing of being able to live in the church here below is a great blessing to you. But also, because of what Christ has done for you, you have a hope of heaven eternally someday. You have a hope that heaven is your home. We sing the song, how beautiful heaven must be. And as we sing the song, we have the hope that someday we're going to live in heaven and experience it ourselves. We have the hope and the assurance that those that have passed on before us that love the Lord, that you could see the spirit of the Lord within their life, within their heart, that they're dwelling in heaven. So their presence of being in heaven, your presence of being in heaven, our hope of being in heaven is not based, as Brother Lucas brought forth, on our works or fulfilling the law or our actions or our acceptance or our belief. But it's based upon what God has done in and through us, through Jesus Christ. So he says, those that mourn their, that are poor in spirit, he says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
even though we have not personally experienced heaven firsthand. I think about those that are in heaven right now and how wonderful that it, we sing the song, how beautiful heaven must be. But we also get great benefits of knowing about heaven. You can allow your mind to travel there based on what God's word has told you about heaven. And you can experience it to some degree as you sing about it, as you meditate about it. And he says, those that are poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You can experience heaven. You've heard it said, heaven on earth. You can experience a measure of that right now because you've been blessed to be poor in spirit. Blessed are they that mourn. Uh, That's interesting that he would say, blessed are they that mourn in line with the one right above it. Those that mourn their sin, those that mourn the world in which we live in, those that get discouraged by the way, those that get disheartened. He says, blessed are they that mourn for they shall be comforted. So if you ever, I appreciate what Brother Cook brought out. I mean, wouldn't you like to experience belief 100% all the time? But we can relate so often to the Father that said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. That's why that we're in need of comfort is because we go through seasons of mourning here in this life, in this world. And he says, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Who is it that comforts us? It's our Heavenly Father. It's our Savior. I love 2 Corinthians chapter 1 where he says that blessed be the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort who comforteth us in all our tribulation. And then he comes down and he tells us that not only does he give us enough comfort to handle it ourselves, the situation ourselves, but he says that he gives us enough comfort whereby we can take that extra comfort or the comfort he's given us to go and help somebody else. That's the God of all comfort. Blessed are they that mourn, those that mourn their sin, those that mourn their life. And he says they shall be comforted. You ever look back upon your life and you think, boy, it it hasn't ended up exactly the way I thought it would. Sometimes it brings about a mourning spirit within us when we look back upon our life and we realize that we've missed the mark so much. He said for those that have experienced that, he says there's a measure of comfort and our Heavenly Father is the comforter. Blessed are they that mourn for they shall be comforted. The next one says, blessed are the meek. Uh, It was said that the the Jews said that wisdom was a great attribute, that meekness was a great attribute. But of the two, above wisdom was meekness. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What does that mean? It means that we realize that we haven't figured everything out, that we don't have all the answers. I remember, uh, Brother Luke, you had an aunt that attended here one time and she came to church and she said when she after services were over, she said, I didn't know how much I didn't know afterwards. Well, sometimes it's good for us to realize that there's a lot that we don't know. 
that God does a work in the lives of His people throughout the world and that He doesn't have to consult us or He doesn't have to run it through our funnel in order for Him to do a work in the lives of other people and that God is doing a mighty work in many, many lives. And yet He might do some in ours as well. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Next one is interesting. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. I think that's interesting the way that he says it right here. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness. You ever hunger or thirst after anything? Remember, I grew up uh, in West Texas and it was hot, triple digits in the summertime oftentimes. And one of my first jobs was, was hoeing cotton. I remember that the rows were so long, it seemed like they were at least a half mile long. It probably weren't, but they seemed like they were. It would probably be considered child abuse now to do that. I don't know that they do that, but I remember at a very young age going out and hoeing cotton, and I can remember how thirsty that I would get. And I would get so excited to think about that cold cup of water that you'd get when you get to the other end of the row. They had this big old galvanized tank that was full of ice and water in it, and that was just such a, such a fulfillment to be able to fulfill and quench your thirst with that that cold ice cold water we just sit there and drink cups of it and it was such a fulfillment well he says right here that we should have a hunger and we should have a thirst in such a way but it's not necessarily for the cold water it's not just necessarily for the natural food what a blessing that is to experience the natural food that we experience. But that's not what we should have a hunger and a thirst for. He said that we should have a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. Now, as Brother Luke brought out, we should have a hunger and thirst for righteousness that's not motivated by fulfilling the law. Because when we look at it, as was brought forth, we can't ever measure up to the law. We can't fulfill the law. We might think for a minute that we could fulfill it for a day or for a season, but we look at it more closely and we realize that we can't fulfill the law to any degree of the law for any period of time. And so the motivation that we have, the hunger and thirst for righteousness, is exactly what he brought forth. It's motivated by the grace of Almighty God. When we see what God has done for us through His grace and through His mercy, it should cause us to have a greater hunger and greater thirst for righteousness based on Him. All of this goes back to what the Lord has done for us in our life. The effective work of what God has done for us, it has to be the motivating factor for what we do. Blessed are they which to hunger and thirst after righteousness, because he says, for they shall be filled. The next one. Blessed are the merciful. This is interesting right here. Do you express mercy to those that are around you? Do you have a strict measuring rod that you judge others by? Do you exercise mercy and compassion And long-suffering to those that are around you. It's interesting right here. 
that he says that those that are merciful, he says those that are merciful will actually obtain mercy. So one reason that we should be long-suffering, one reason that we should be forgiving, one reason that we should be compassionate, one reason that we should have mercy upon other people is that God turns right around and He blesses us to some degree with the mercy that we express to other folks. He says, Blessed are those that are merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. It's interesting right here that he doesn't say in mind or in other areas, but he says that the heart. Well, we understand out of Jeremiah that uh, chapter 17 says the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Our heart's in need of being changed. The only way that we're going to experience a pureness of heart is that God changes our heart. That, as the psalmist says in Psalm 51, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. The only way that you can experience a pure heart is that God does the work within you. Your heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Above all, who can know it? We can't even know the extent of the depravity of ourselves. We, we have no idea of the extent of the depravity of ourselves left to ourselves. But thank goodness... That's not where we're left. There's a change that occurs within us. And as a result of it, God blesses us with a pure heart. It doesn't doesn't mean that we've got everything figured out. It doesn't mean that we think everything the way that we would like to all the time. But what it does mean is that we have a desire. We have a desire. We have a strong desire to follow the Lord and to do what the Lord would have us to do. We pray to the Lord. We ask the Lord, Lord, would you make my path plain? Lord, would you give me a clear path, a plain path? He says, blessed are they. Blessed are the pure in heart. And he says, there's something about it. Those that have experienced the pureness of heart, the clean heart, the the changed heart. He says, you're going to see God. Now, how do we see God? There's not any of us that have actually looked at God and seen Him face to face, but how do we see God? We see God through His Word. We see God through singing of hymns. We see God through others, God working in the lives of others. I I hear reports about people that have gone to the Farringtons to minister to the Farringtons, have gone to other folks to minister to Brother James Rourke and, and different ones, to Sister Lee and different ones like that. Isn't that Christ being made present and manifesting Himself when you're ministering to others? That Christ is there? He says, blessed are... Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. I'm thankful that in my life I've known of a number of ministers that were uh, peacemakers. Elder Compton was one of them. Uh, Brother James Stamper, others that were such a blessing in our life. Yesterday, we had just a really great uh, service in New York. Real good service. It was well attended. Uh, Elder Tom Taylor from uh, Crosbyton, Texas, 
church, first church that I pastored was there with his wife, and he's the brother of John Taylor, and he spoke, and then afterwards we visited. And I was talking to him about some of the folks that I knew at the Crosbyton Church when I was there, and I was asking about this group of sisters that were elderly, and all of them have since passed away, but their father was the pastor of the church for many years, like in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. Brother Tom said, I didn't know him, Elder T.A. Dunn, but I knew about him. I heard about him. He said in those years, sadly, in the Primitive Baptist churches, there were a bunch of different what they called factions. They had different names, the Peace Baptist, the Trumpet Baptist, the Morgan Baptist, the Casey Baptist, the Richards Baptist. And there were all these little factions of Primitive Baptist. And you had to be a, a, a member of that particular group to have full fellowship with them. Brother Tom was explaining this to me. Thankfully, all that has since passed away. But he said, you know, one thing that I remember hearing about Elder Don is that he never got involved in that stuff. He never promoted it. He never embraced it. He says he was a true peacemaker. Right here it says, blessed are the peacemakers. He said, because they're going to be recognized as they shall be called the children of God. The next one. Blessed are the persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now, he's not talking about persecuted because you got caught and received a ticket for speeding. He's not talking about being persecuted for something that you did wrong that you ought to really be persecuted for. But he said, blessed are the persecuted for righteousness' sake. That just simply means that Fulfilling the life of a Christian and living as a Christian, especially in the day in which we live, you may be challenged in your workplace. You may lose your job. I remember Sister Julie Mann, who attended here a long time. She was a, uh, a teacher. And um, when she was questioned about her belief in a particular school, she ended up not getting the job that she was applying for. And uh, uh, she wasn't hired because of that. Well, that's sort of being persecuted for righteousness' sake. It says, blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The next one. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. It's interesting right there that he says, say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. It happened to the apostles. It happened to the disciples. It happened to the followers of Christ. And it's happening to Christians today. It is. He says, blessed are ye when men shall revile you, persecute you, say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. And then he will sum it up with the next few verses. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. For great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. And then he says, and he's delivering this message to those that are there, and it's equally there for you and I as well. He says, out of the whole earth, out of all of Adam's race, 
out of all this confusion and chaos in the world in which we live, out of all of the evil reports, out of all of the discouraging reports, he says, you, this little band of believers, you, this flock, he says, you are the salt of the earth. Now, salt, just a little bit of it, makes a big difference. Just a little bit of salt makes something that's not palatable, palatable and even tasty. You ever tried in this? There's a verse. I can find it for you after church. But there's a verse in the Bible about uh, eating an egg without salt. You ever tried to eat an egg without salt? I mean, it just it just doesn't taste very good at all. But you put a little bit of salt on there and it changes it and actually makes it desirous. And here he's saying that you are the salt of the earth. You may think my little light doesn't make any difference whatsoever, but he refers to it and he says, your little bit of salt is going to make a huge difference in the earth in which you live. He said, you're the salt of the earth. But he says, if the salt have lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under the foot of men. Then he uses this. He says, and you are the light of the world. Isn't it amazing how that when there's an area that's extremely dark, that it doesn't take much light to make a big, big difference. Just a little bit of light makes a huge difference. You don't have to be a floodlight. You don't have to be a halogen light. You can just simply be a candle and shining your light in the midst of a dark world. You don't have to go out and save the world. You don't have to go out and turn the world around. You don't have to have everybody see it the way you see it and believe it the way you believe it. You simply go shine the light that God has given you. And you'd be surprised what a difference it will make if you just simply use what God has given you. Do you know that our desire should be motivated by grace? But we should have a desire to be fruitful and to be used of the Lord to shine the light that he's given us. And if we live to be 70 or 80 or 90 years old, it's amazing how that we can still shine that light all the way to the end. He says, you're the light of the world. A city that's set on a hill, it cannot be hid. Neither do men, or he says basically you shouldn't. You shouldn't light a candle and put it under a bushel, under a basket. But it should be on a candlestick and giveth light unto all that are in the house. Not only should it illuminate those that are within your house, but in your community, in the places that you go, the people that you meet, your jobs, other places. You ought to be the one that is the difference. He said, let your light so shine before men. And then he, I'm so glad he wraps this back up. He says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. So you'll get to heaven? No, no. 
He said, we are called unto good works. Second Corinthians, uh, second chapter of Ephesians. He said, we are his workmanship created unto good works. Here he tells us right here, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. And here's the purpose of you performing the good works so that it might glorify. It says, see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So if there's any good works that you do, if there's any good deeds, if there's any good actions, if there's any good words, if there's anything that you do that's any good at all, you just have to simply turn around and give God all the glory for it. That you glorify your Father which is in heaven. It's not of ourselves, but it's of our Heavenly Father. He gets all the credit and all the praise. He says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify. And that they and you would glorify your Father which is in heaven. You shouldn't perform your good works in such a way that you want them to glorify you. You should perform your such good works in such a way that, that God gets the glory for it. And then you also ought to give Him the glory for it as well. May God bless you.